everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about joy. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to do one thing and ask you to do another. I want to invite you to download a free resource that we are giving away with this series. For this series of sermons on joy, we produced a companion devotional booklet. It's over 50 pages long. It has devotional entries for each day that I'm not preaching. I really do think it is something that would be valuable to your spiritual life. And you can get it for absolutely free. All you have to do is go to wilsonville.church joy. That's wilsonville.church joy. And click on the download booklet button. I also want to ask you to leave a rating or review if you find this sermon particularly helpful to you. When you leave a rating or review on your podcast host, it helps our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that that is super important. And So please do that if you feel led to do so. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I really do hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So my wife and I have been doing P90X3, which is the half-hour version of P90X, the workout routine, uh, since like the day after Easter. And so we haven't missed a workout in, uh, she's back there, but like 28 days or something like that. I have not missed a single day of working out. Uh, has nothing to do with my sermon, I just wanted to tell you. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Um, and so uh, I, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and, and here's, I, I, I don't know why, but I, I feel like it's helpful to me to do these workouts to wake up just complaining about it, at least in my head, like, oh, I got to work out today. Like, oh, they're going to make me bend in ways that are not humanly possible, and I'm going to have to do a million push-ups. And, and so I just wake up. This has been like kind of a down week. You work out, but it's less intense, so I feel good today. But, but tomorrow I start like eccentric upper. That's what it's called. It sounds terrible. I'm already complaining in my head like, I can't believe I have to do it. I can't believe I have to do it. And I'll say to Bryn, like, I've never dreaded anything more in my life. That's like what I'm waking up with right now and and for some reason I think it helps to complain but we all know it doesn't right it just makes me a complainer and and Bryn's really good about not complaining but I I just feel like it's helpful and 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 the world we live in and the culture that we live in it has that mentality about almost everything like you know right if you're on Facebook you really know that it seems like people think that complaining is going to somehow make a difference in the world and we've kind of we've grown grown we've digressed to a place in our culture where we no longer ask like how can we fix whatever we think the problem is we just say well I'll complain about it and and maybe that will do something and uh, you have tons of this just all over the place. It seems like people, actually, it doesn't seem like, there's whole careers built upon complaining about things and just whining about things and and talking bad about the other people that are causing those things. And there's this mentality, and, and I don't... I don't think that if we were to really, you know, consider, like, does complaining actually help, that we would say yes to that. But we live in a time in our country's history where we feel like that's true, like 
hey, what are you doing to fix the poverty problem in America? Well, I'm complaining about it, you know, like I'm letting everybody know that it's somebody's fault that people are poor and don't have enough to eat, you know, and, and this is, this seems to be just pervasive everywhere we look. People complain and complain and complain and then people start complaining about the people that are complaining and then people complain about the people that are complaining about the people that are complaining and and we just live don't we right like I don't I don't think that I'm wrong like we live at a time in history where there's it's it's we're so inundated with complaints that we hardly even stop to consider why people are complaining and, and here's, here's the sad truth. The group that's known best for complaining, although I don't think we probably do it the best, but the group that's known best for complaining is, is Christians. I mean, if you were to ask a non-Christian who doesn't have any background with Christianity, like, well, what do you think of when you think of Christians? You would hear Republican number one and then like number two would be like that's they're a group of people who just whine and complain about the way culture is and 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 how it's gone in the wrong direction and uh and about the last president uh if not the current one and that that's that's kind of how we're known today and and what we'll see in this passage of scripture we're going to look at today is is that in fact it's, it's not good. It's not beneficial. It doesn't help. I mean, just like, like complaining about your workout doesn't make the workout any easier. Uh, complaining about anything doesn't make that thing any better at all. And, and so here's, let me just give you a quick setup to this passage. It's really, it's quite a good passage. And, and by the way, this series is on joy. You saw that in the video, but, but joy is going to come in at the end. And what we're going to see in and this passage today is that all of it is building towards joy, even though it doesn't really look like it until the very end. It's like all these topics and, and really important, and, then, and, and I'll try to connect them to joy as we go, but it all builds towards this really kind of awesome statement about, about Paul, the writer of this letter called Philippians, his joy, and how these other people, the Philippians who he's writing to, should experience that joy. But the setup for the passage is, is like as important as the passage. It's Philippians 2, and at the beginning of Philippians 2, Paul calls the church in Philippi to have this, this attitude of deep, spiritual, loving connection between uh, each other. And he's calling for this mindset where, where the people in the church in Philippi actually consider the other people in the church more important than them, and they place the other people's success and well-being above their own success and well-being. There was kind of a problem in the church of, in Philippi. We don't exactly know what it was, but there's, there's some level of disunity. And Paul, in part, writes the letter of Philippians about this disunity. This, 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 disunity, that was kind of difficult for me to say, this disunity uh, between the people. And, and as, as a solution, he says, here's, here's what you need to do. You need to humble yourselves and make other people more important than you in your church. And you need to serve them. And, and like I said, make their success and well-being, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, you know, more important than what you are doing with your life and your happiness and things like that. 
And that's, that's big as, as we read our passage. But then he does this incredible thing. And, and he uses the example of Jesus. And in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the most famous part maybe of the entire book of Philippians, uh, Paul uses Jesus as an example for what it means to humble yourself for the good of another person or other people. And, and he gives us one of the most important Christological uh, Christ focused passages of scripture in the entire New Testament because it teaches us about uh, it teaches us about who Jesus is as God and how Jesus lowered himself and what it means for Jesus to kind of be a man and 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 what it what Jesus does now sitting at the right hand of the Father it's really a brilliant passage of scripture you should read it Philippians 2 5 through 11 and you should also I just preached on it not long ago and so I don't want to dive into it but in my series called the prideful loser which you can see it will Wilsonville.church slash prideful loser. Uh, I, I talked about the importance of this as far as understanding Jesus. But it all points to this incredible example of, of serving others and lowering yourself for the good of others. And so that, that is right before our passage. And our passage begins with a therefore, tying it to that you need to humble yourselves for the good of others and you have an incredible example in Jesus in the being Jesus and this is what he says in Philippians 2 12 through 13 therefore my dear friends as you have always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There's this statement that Paul makes that's really important and it's really important that we read it correctly because sometimes people want to read it that you need to work for your salvation but it's really important that we read it correctly and that is work out your salvation. He is not looking at a group of non-Christians and saying you need to work, strive, fight in order to get saved, in order to have a relationship with God, in order to make sure that you're going to heaven someday. He's saying, look, you people are saved and you need to make sure that you work on or work out that salvation. And that's an important distinction because what the Bible and what Paul writing in the Bible makes very clear is that we are saved through faith alone apart from the law. We believe as Christians that Jesus is God in human form. That's what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says. He came down to earth, he died, and then he rose again. And he did that in order to pay for your sins, in order to conquer death so that you might have access to God. And we cannot earn our relationship with God at all. All we can do is place our faith in Jesus, which means to believe what I just said, and then to give our lives to Jesus saying, I will follow you and make you my Lord and my King. And so Paul here isn't saying, hey, you need to do a bunch of good stuff in order to get a relationship with God, in order to be saved, in order to have salvation. What Paul is saying is that because you have salvation, you need to be careful to work it out, to live in light of it. He said it elsewhere, to live a a life that is worthy of the gospel that you've been called to. We should be living in a way that is a response to this incredible grace that Jesus would die for for me, that Jesus would die for you. So it's really important that we read it right and not say, well, do I need to earn my salvation? You you don't. You need to 
give your life to Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But there's this other side of it that if you grew up in Christian circles like me, and I know many of you did, the other side of, of reading this right is that we need to actually read it and pay attention to it. Because if you grew up like me, it's like, this, is, this would be how I would have you know, read this growing up in, in kind of my Christian heritage. It would have been like, I need to work out my salvation. That doesn't mean that I need to work for my salvation. Good, let's move on to the next passage of Scripture. We just kind of have ignored this because like, well, I'm already saved. And in, in the, the background that I have in my Christianity, it's like I'm never going to be unsaved. And so what does this actually matter? But it does. Paul places this, he says this in an emphatic way. He, he adds to it fear and trembling, and he actually puts fear and trembling in the emphatic position. You should, even though you are already saved, you should be approaching your life and your salvation, your relationship with God with a healthy dose of respect and fear, and you should be working on the salvation you have, working out the salvation that you have. Now, here's what's so fascinating and if you come from a background that believes in eternal security, believes that once you are saved, you are always saved, which I do, then there's some language here that we just want to ignore because it's easier to ignore it. Paul is making pretty clear here that they, they should approach their salvation as if like they need to hold on to it. And earlier in the last chapter, Paul made pretty clear that he was convinced that his salvation would last. That's great if you believe that you are going to always be saved. But what he says is, I need your prayers to make sure that that's true. Now, I'm a person that doesn't believe you can ever lose, give up, quit on your salvation. I am a person who believes that once you are saved, you are always saved. But... I'm also a person that says I need to pay attention to the entirety of Scripture. And, and whether you believe that, that you could stop being a Christian someday or not is really unimportant. What I always tell people when it comes to this issue is, is pretty simply this. If you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. I don't care what you said when you were five years old. I don't care what you thought when you were 15. I don't care that you had a moment in your bedroom when you were a teenager, right? Like, if you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. The Bible makes no room for the idea that you can be somebody who doesn't live for Jesus, who doesn't care about Jesus, who doesn't serve Jesus, and because you happened to say something when you were five years old, you still get to go to heaven someday. It's just not scriptural. And so wherever you fall, you need to be cautioned by this passage of scripture that says, look, you are saved, not by anything that you do, not by any amount of works, you are saved. But be really careful in how you live in light of that salvation. Approach it with fear and trembling. There's, there's a good example in my life currently. Um, Hazel has always been scared of my loud, booming voice. And all, like 99% of kids, like I, if I decide to like go into like dad voice and just get on them, they'll just listen to me. They'll just run or listen to me, one of the two. <laughs> and so Hazel, like I've always, it's, it's always been easy with some safety issues. Like 
don't stick your finger in the outlet. I'll let her get her finger kind of close to the outlet, and then I'll just yell, and then she doesn't put her finger by the outlet anymore. Same with our fireplace. Same with walking into a street without looking both ways. I'll hold her hand. I'll let her take a step towards the street, and I'll yell like she's about to get hit by a car, and then she doesn't want to step in a street anymore, and it works out. Hudson laughs when I yell. My youngest, my new son. And it's really it's just difficult because he touches the fireplace. Hudson, knock it off. And he's like, <laughs> fireplace. Like, um, he's going to learn one way or another. But I'm hoping he learns without the pain and the suffering. And what Paul is saying here is, is Hudson's attitude about our salvation is not right. When we consider our salvation, we should remember that God is the one who saves us, but God is the one who is in control, that Jesus is both our Lord and our King, even though he's our Savior, that he should be obeyed, that his presence is scary because we are imperfect beings who are totally reliant upon his grace. And, and I would guess that most of you come from a background like me, where it's like, once I'm saved, I'm always saved. And that's fine. But you should approach your salvation with fear and trembling. Remember, remembering that it is all about God's grace. And you should live out and work out that salvation. Knowing that God's booming loud voice is a thing to be feared. And something that you should never want to hear. I don't know, this isn't even planned, but like... One of the problems with putting yourself in a theological box is that it causes problems when you read scripture because you don't read it right anymore. You just read it to fit your opinions. And I'm not that guy. And that's one of the reasons I don't fit in a lot of boxes. And, uh, and I just want to say, like, pay attention to this. And it's going to factor into what we're seeing about joy here because, believe it or not, living out, working out your salvation with fear and trembling is all, this is moving towards having joy. And if you want to have joy, then you need to be a person that works out your salvation with fear and trembling. I would just go back to Hudson for a second. I mean, we think like, well, if I just don't have to listen to God or don't care about God, then, then everything, then I'll be more joyful, then I'll have more happiness, then I can do whatever I want, right? God just wants me to be happy. Now think about Hudson touching a fireplace someday. Ours has a screen on it so he can do it and not get burned, but someday he's going to walk up to a fireplace and there's not going to be anything there. He's going to touch it and his first thought will probably not be, although it should be, I should have listened to my dad in the first place. And if we want joy then we need, to, we need to have a healthy respect of God because it keeps us going in the direction of joy and it prevents us from hurting ourselves. And Paul, I'll just move on. Uh, oh, oh, there's other cool language here and I really like it. it, is, it this language is like we work out and God works in and so we're striving our best to live for God but we also have to remember that it's God who's producing the fruit and the results and, and we that's a hard thing for us, right? That's a weird tension and, and, and I would be lying if I said I have that whole tension worked out and we see that tension. I mean, we have our prayer meeting Friday as Brandon said, we see that tension in prayer, right? Like, like God's calling us to prayer and I'm going to pray and I need to pray. But I believe God is the one who's deciding what he does with those prayers. But if I don't pray, then, I'm, then, then maybe God won't move. And that whole tension is, is 
is interesting, right? But I think Augustine had it down when he said, pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on you. That's a really important concept, even though one that's really difficult for us to understand. So we need to work out our salvation. And the rest of what's said in this passage is an unpacking uh, of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. What it means to work out your salvation. Okay, that's big, right? What does it mean to work out my salvation? Here's what Paul says next in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Not what you expected unless you already knew, right? Like unless you read ahead, that's, that's not it. Like follow the Ten Commandments or read the Bible and pray more like that. Like do everything without grumbling or arguing as it says in the NIV. Just let's pause and just consider that for a second. It, it's it's kind of strange. Okay, you need to work out your salvation. You need to do your best to live in light of the gospel that you've, that you've taken a hold of. You need to do your best to live as a response to the grace that God has poured out to you through Jesus. If you're a Christian, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, this, this is just interesting because we would, that's not what, what we say as Christians, and I say this a lot in my sermons, like if, you, if I'm going to ask the average person in our church or the average Christian, what, do you, what would God tell you to do differently if you could call him on a phone and say, hey God, what do I need to do differently? And people always say, I should read the Bible more and I should pray more. And then they say, I don't know what the third one is. They probably do, but they don't want to tell me. You know, like, I mean, that's how that conversation every single time goes. And maybe we should stop grumbling, complaining, and arguing. Now, again, spoiler alert, this passage is building towards a climax of joy, and it's really important. I mean, this makes sense. That part makes sense to us, right? If we would stop complaining and arguing, if we'd stop grumbling and arguing, then, uh, uh, like, I mean, every self-help book kind of says this, right? Like, you would become more joyful. If you would stop with the negative talk, you would become more joyful, and that's exactly what Paul is building towards, but he's connecting it towards working out our salvation. So the first thing he says is do everything without grumbling, and, and that just means don't complain. And So look, challenge of the week, don't complain. Now I know what you think, like there's, I gotta be able to complain about, you know, those people, or that guy, or this group, or but it's pretty clear. Paul says do everything and everything is in the emphatic position. Like, and he uses the word everything. Would have been easy to say like don't complain too much. Do everything without complaining. That's hard. I complain like literally every two seconds. Like I mean on average. You know if you count how long I go in certain complaints. I mean it's really, really difficult to not complain. But Paul says this is part of working out your salvation and this is part of moving your life towards being a life of joy. Don't complain. Now this, this other one, don't argue. Uh, it's this English word, uh, or it's where we get the, this Greek word that translates argue. I think the NIV does a terrible job with translating this word. Um, and and it's, the, it's the Greek word in which we get the English word dialogue. And so the, the word is a reference to dialogue, and you can see where they get arguing from that. But it's pretty clearly 
a, a word that references an internal dialogue. So this isn't, we, I mean, when I first read it, when you first read it, right, you're like, well, that makes, that makes sense. Like, if I would just stop arguing with my spouse or with my kids or with my parents or with the people at work, then, then I could see that being connected to working out my salvation and joy. But, it, but it's a word that, that references an, an, an internal dialogue, like thinking. It's a word that references thinking. That, that would be a, actually a better translation. But I'm like me, like if you're like me and you're studying for this sermon, you're like, do everything without thinking? <laughs> like that, that's probably not right, right? Like there has to be a different meaning here. That's pretty impossible sounding actually. And so I, I, dove, I dove into this word, like what does this word mean? And it's an interesting word because it's used around 10 times in the New Testament. And every single time it's used with a negative in a negative context. Every single time. Let me give you an example of how it's used in the New Testament. Luke 6, 7, and 8. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were same word, thinking. Jesus knew what they were thinking. W.E. Vine, who wrote a book just basically talking about Greek words in the New Testament, said, chiefly in the NT, the New Testament, in an evil sense, referring to this word, reasonings that are the outcome of self-will, reasonings of the natural mind and independence of God. So here's, here's what I think that, that this word means. And uh, didn't find this anywhere else. This is original to me, so take it for what it's worth. Uh, here's what I think it, 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 it's talking about. Thinking in a way that is contrary to the truth of God. That's what I think the word means in the New Testament. Thinking in a way that is contrary to the truth of God. So what Paul says here is do everything without complaining or thinking in a way that is contrary to the way that God would tell you to think, to the things that God has declared to you in his word, to the way in which God believes. Romans 12, or excuse me, 121, talking about people who have rejected God altogether uses this same word. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thank, thinking became futile, their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what does that look like? And, and, and man, I was thinking about it. And there's so many ways that that, that plays out. And, and ways that I know people that are right in front of me right now think. And they think in ways that are contrary to God. And we almost accept that as okay as long as it doesn't act out in any way. you know. And, and we actually sin in, in, on the outside. And so we're like, yeah, I'll just kind of think wrong, but it'll be okay. And Paul here is saying, don't, know, Like, don't complain and don't think in a way that is contrary to God. Like, I've seen so many people... Choose sin and then reject God because of this line of thinking. God just wants me to be happy. He doesn't care if I'm obedient to him. I know lots of people who have a lot less joy and who no longer live at all for Jesus because it started with embracing this thought that God does not care about my obedience. He just wants me to feel good in the moment. God doesn't care if I don't stick my finger in the outlet. He just wants me to be able to do whatever I want to be able to do. Here's another one. And I know, I know some of you have, have dealt with this, have thought this. 
maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe God isn't working things for my good. Right? Like the Bible declares that everything is being worked for your good. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. If you don't have the devotional booklet for this series, you should get that because I talk a lot about that in that devotional booklet. But like we go through a hard time and and the Bible says God will work everything for your good. And the people who deal with that that adversity the best are people who, who don't feel like, oh, sweet, God's doing something good here because my loved one died. But it is people who believe it and think it. I don't feel it, God. I don't see it, God. I don't know what you're going to do, but I do believe in this. Despite this, you're going to work it out for my good. Or this one, maybe Jesus' grace isn't enough for me because I've sinned too big. I know a lot of people who feel like they need to make up the difference, like pay their penance, do whatever they got to do, because Jesus' grace, like it's good enough for everybody else. But I'm not sure that his death really can, can take care of this sin that I committed. And Paul's saying like, hey, you want to work out your salvation? You have to stop complaining. And you have to stop thinking in a way that is contrary to what God has told you. I, I don't think we take those things very seriously. And Paul puts them in a pretty serious position here, Right? I think we're pretty okay with complaining as modern-day Christians. We're known for our complaints. And, and I, I think that we're pretty okay with thinking in a way that is contrary to God. We believe that it's okay as long as we don't, as we don't start to act on it. And here's, here's what I, I think it's like. I mean, this is an, an inner voice and an outer voice, right? Complaints are outside of us. An inner voice is... Is us saying, well, God doesn't really, God doesn't really. And I think it's like one of these that my friend Brock right over here gave uh, my daughter. And it's become one of our favorite toys because it's really loud without being actually, you know, on a microphone at all. Um, And so we yell in each other's ears. Hazel is like almost destroyed my ears a couple of times with this thing. We look at each other's mouths through this. uh, So thanks, Brock. Um, uh, But but I I think it's a little like this. We think that that inner voice will just stay here, right? We think that that outer complaint will just kind of be this quick moment that doesn't make a difference. But what happens over time is it spreads. Whether it spreads in our lives or what we've seen in modern day Christianity, whether all of our complaints and our thinking that goes against what God tells us, I mean, it spreads so it becomes pervasive throughout Christianity as a whole. And we're now known for being people who don't really believe the things that God says and people who just complain about everything. And, and so I think it acts as a, I don't know, is this a megaphone, like a, a, a non-battery-powered a megaphone? Yeah, I think, it, I think that our complaints coming out of our mouths and our inner thoughts that are against what God has told us act as a megaphone to our lives and to the Christian culture in general. And, and, and here's, here's how I, 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 why I think that, because of what he says next. He says, don't, don't complain. Don't think in a way that's contrary to God, verses 15 and 16, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Wow, could he make it any bigger? 
Like, hey, don't complain, don't argue. It's connected to you working out your salvation. We'll see that it's connected to joy. And oh, by the way, it's connected to you living a pure and blameless life. What? Like, that's such a huge statement. That's such a huge statement. And then I'm like, how? You know, like, I'm, like I, I kind of got skeptical about this passage. Like, wow, I'm going to preach that, but is that real? Is that even real? Like, really, my not complaining and my thinking, you know, in the way that God wants me to, that, that will lead to me being pure and blameless? So pure and blameless that I stand out in a culture that is against God? That's what he says when he says shining like the stars in the sky. It's like this beautiful metaphor to say, do you want to have a beautiful life? Well, it'll come through your purity and your blamelessness and that will come as you stop complaining and you think in a way that God thinks. And so this passage, I'm like, really? But the passage actually uses the language of the Exodus story, this story in the Old Testament where the Jewish people are, are being persecuted and enslaved by the Egyptian and God sets them free and they get out into the wilderness. And you can see some of that language in Deuteronomy 32.5. They are corrupt and not as children to their shame. They are a warped and crooked generation. In the book of Numbers, and this is so just clarifying for this passage in the book of numbers we see over and over and over again that the jewish people after they are exiled are complaining against god 11 1 through 6 14 1 through 4 22 21 4 through 5 it's a story of the jewish people get this complaining against god and as they complain against god they stop thinking in a way that holds to the truth of god and then they start to follow other gods and they sin against God so I'm like wow is this real and then I look at this entire nation where this was the story of their rejection of God over and over and over again they're like out in the wilderness and and God's like hey I'm gonna provide manna for you this heavenly sweet bread that's like the little roadhouse in Salem their bread I'm pretty certain of it I've said that before in a sermon I know I'm pretty certain it's, and it's like the bread they serve you it's a little honey flavored and he brings it down to them and they're eating it and they're like eh, you know like come on this is what we want and we don't want this or they're like we got to collect it every day we'll collect a little extra on Saturday and they start to reject God it starts with a complaint, and then they think, maybe God's not in it for us. Maybe God's not really here for us. They had a whole water incident. Like, oh, like God brought us out into the wilderness. He saved us from exile in order that we could, we could go thirsty in the desert and, and get dehydrated and die. And, and so then they just start to not live for God. The, the complaining turns into wrong thinking about God and if God loves them and if God cares about them and if God's really going to take care of them and it turns to them rejecting God and the things that God has called them to do and I think this is what Paul is getting at we can be so much like the Jewish people living in the desert because we do live in the desert I mean that's a metaphor that the Bible uses too we're living in the time in between when God has saved us from the the enslavement that we were under of sin and death, he has saved us from that, but we await the day when we will enter into the promised land and live eternity with him. And we can be so quick to complain about what we're seeing in front of us. And it can turn into us not thinking, like, really, God, are you really at work? Are you really alive and active? Are you really listening to my prayers? Are you really on my side? 
And that turns into us saying, God, I'm not going to do what you, what you want me to do. There's this, this idea in addiction. You probably know this pretty if you've taken any psychology class ever. Like, there's this idea in addiction uh, of a trigger, right? And, and what causes you to give back into your addiction once you've, you're fighting it is, is that something triggers you. And we usually think of triggers as like, you know, you walk into a bar and there's alcohol and you're trying to break that. Or you see a scantily dressed woman and you're trying to break a lust addiction. And, and that's the trigger. But a lot of triggers, this is what the psychologists tell us and I've seen this. A lot of triggers are, are really just negative emotion. Negative things that we face. And we can contribute to that with with frankly negative self-talk and I hate to sound like you know psychobabble or something like that but Dara Thailand which I just looked up like the role of self-talk in in addiction and and Dara Thailand which is a uh, an addiction center in in Thailand says this this negative self-talk can seriously interfere with their speaking of people addicts with their ability to find happiness in life and it can even lead to symptoms of mental illness such as depression. In addiction, negative self-talk is sometimes referred to as stinking thinking. And of course, I had to Google stinking thinking, right? And so Dara Thailand had an answer for me. This is an undesirable state of affairs because if people are thinking like an addict, then it might not be long before they follow this with action. Notice that. Because here's the reality. Every one of you who is a Christian is a recovering sin addict. We were addicted to sin. We were caught in our sin. We were chained by our sin. We were wrapped up in our sin. And Jesus broke those chains. But when we think like a sinner, this is what, this is what the psychologists are telling us. I think this is what Paul is telling us. When we think like a sinner, then we will begin to act like a sinner. Think about this. When we complain and when we think in a way that is not in line with God, we think like people who don't have a relationship with Jesus, do we not? I mean, what is there to complain about when you know that the God of the universe stepped down from heaven above, died for your sins, came out of the grave, filled you with his Holy Spirit, directs you, leads you, guides you, adopted you as his child, loves you, cares about you, protects you, sustains you, makes everything that is bad, he works it all for your good, and he's going to take you into heaven someday. What's there to complain about? And when we complain, we think like an addicted sinner. And when we, when we start to think like that, then, then it changes our minds even. And we start to think like, well, maybe God doesn't love me. And maybe God isn't here for me. And maybe God doesn't care about me. What's the natural progression? We're going to start acting out like a sinner. I know we have this language in Christian cultures where we say, I'm just, a, I'm just a sinner. We say that, but that's not true, actually. The Bible doesn't, doesn't say that. When you become a Christian, you're not just a sinner. You are a saved sinner who is something more than a sinner. You are a, a sinner who now has the Holy Spirit helping you not give in to sin anymore, who has God on your side that is dead to sin. That's how we're dead to sin when we become alive in Christ. We are not just sinners anymore, but when we think and talk like sinners, we will begin to act like sinners. And so Paul says, stop complaining and stop thinking in a way that is contradictory to what God has declared about you and to you so that you may be blameless and pure and you may shine like the stars in this warped and crooked generation. He even says here, and this is so good, this is so important, he says this, this other phrase where 
And he's like, you will hold firmly to the word of life. And it's this word that can mean we hold tightly to something. Or it's a word that means we can hold out something like a cup to a thirsty person so that they might drink from it. And I think it's double entendre. I think Paul is probably saying both. There's debate about which one and whenever there is, I just like to take both and say, yeah. Like he's saying like when we don't think in a way that is contradictory to God and when we stop complaining, we live in a pure and blameless way and as we do that, we hold tightly to our own salvation, the things of God, to living a life that is worthy of the gospel and we hold out the cup of salvation to others so that they might accept it as true too. Isn't that cool? All because you stop complaining and thinking wrong. I love it. I mean, that's so good. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus talking says, you are the light of the world. Do you think that's currently true of the American Christian culture? Do you think that's currently true of you? I would just say probably not about the Christian culture, maybe about you. But if you want to truly be the light of the world, stop complaining and stop thinking in a way that is contradictory to God. And this is how he concludes in Philippians 2, 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Drink offering is a a phrase Paul uses to refer to his own potential martyrdom. He might die for the faith. And what he's saying here is in essence, look, if I die, it's, it's me being poured out. It's a lesser sacrifice than the sacrifice that you people in Philippi are making, which is supporting him through prayer and love and finances. Uh, and Susan, you've made this incredible sacrifice for God, and I can add to that sacrifice if they decide to kill me at this trial that I'm going to go to soon. But even in all that sacrifice, which for us, sacrifice is like the opposite of joy, Right? I mean, it's, it, we fear sacrifice for anything. It, it takes away our joy. Our, our, the thought of sacrifice takes away our joy as we talked about last week. But Paul says, even if we are sacrificing together, then I rejoice and rejoice with all of you. Now, there's what uh, Peter T. O'Brien, who wrote a very large commentary, a book about the book of Philippians, says, the rep- repetition of joy and togetherness is striking. It's this wonderful climax where he says word for rejoice four times and he says words for you and me a bunch of times, right? Like we're rejoicing together. We are sharing in each other's joy. By the way, and I haven't said this, I've said this, I wrote this in the devotional and I think it's important. The word rejoice, biblical word rejoice, and this is probably what we mean in English, but this was really helpful to me. It's just the verb form of joy. And so when Paul says rejoice, he's just saying, like, I joy. I like that. I don't know if that's helpful for you, but I like that idea. Like, I joy. He's saying, I joy, and I joy with you, and so you should joy and joy with me. If we will be people who stop complaining and start thinking like God, we will become pure and blameless holding tightly to our salvation and offering that salvation to other people. And even if we have to sacrifice our very lives for God, we can still all rejoice together. And this is my final idea that's part of it. 
we must have people, and this kind of seems to be the theme over and over, right, of these sermons, and it's not today, but it's, it's a byproduct of what Paul's saying. We have to be people who have others that we can joy with. The language here is sharing joy, like, we, like you share a piece of cake, like you share, right? Like we are sharing this joy together. And I'm just telling you, I know we're Americans and we live in 2018 and, and the idea is that we'll be more happy if we could just avoid other people. I know people that actually think like that, but Paul's saying it's all building. All of this builds towards us being able to rejoice together. You have to have relationships where you can celebrate the work of God together. And so this morning, I'll leave you with what I've said a, a bunch of times, and, and, and this is the takeaway. If you want joy, work out your salvation by not complaining or thinking in a way that contradicts the truth of God, and find someone to share that joy with. When you leave here today, I, I just, this is what's going to happen. You, this is one of those sermons. They're all these sermons. Great idea, Chad. Great idea. And you're going to leave, and you're just going to go and you're going to complain about how long I talked or how hungry you were when church, like it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. And I hope that I'll just, me and the Holy Spirit will just be in your head all week saying, don't complain. Don't complain, don't complain. And don't think in a way that is contradictory to the truth of God. There's a bunch hanging on that. So don't complain and don't think in a way that's contradictory to the truth of God. Let me pray you'll do that. Lord, I I shouldn't pray that they'll do that. I should pray that I'll do that, God. Um, I pray that we would, I pray that we in this community as a church, as a congregation, would be known, God, for our joy. I've prayed that in this series. But I also pray that we would be known, God, for how pure and blameless we are. A church that, that, doesn't, that doesn't accept sin, that this is not okay with sin. But I also pray, God, that we would be a church that is known for not complaining. I pray that we'd be known, like people would be like, man, no matter how difficult things are, no matter what, we can look at them and know they won't complain about it. God, I pray for, for us as individuals that, that when people think about our Facebook feeds and our Instagrams and our Twitters and our Snapchats, that, that they would not at all think that we are people who complain, but they would think of us as people who experience and express your glory by God experiencing and expressing the joy that you have given us. I pray, God, and I know there's a struggle, so some struggles with this in, with people in our congregation, that we would be a church that thinks like, like you, God, that, that learns to conform our minds, as you say it in Romans, conforms our minds to, to you and who you are and, and your truth, God. And I pray, God, that the people here that think I could never be saved because I'm too bad, that they become Christians, first of all. But I know there's others who, who think like, well, I know God saved me, but he can never forgive me for this. And I pray you take away that thinking. And I pray, God, for people who are struggling with whether you really love them and they would know that you do. And I pray, God, for those who are wondering if you are at work and alive in their lives and they would know that you are. And I pray, God, that you would remind people who are struggling that you are working in the midst of their struggle and their hurt, that you are not causing the things that they are dealing with, but you are helping them and working those things out for their good, Lord. I pray that we would be a church that thinks like you and doesn't complain, God, because there's so much riding on it. 
I ask these things in your name. Amen.